So we'll be reading from Joshua chapter 5, um, verse 13, and we will be reading up to chapter 6, 27 today. So hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you. Uh, it's on page 217 of the Blue Bibles if you're in that. Cool. <laughs> now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have the whole army give a loud shout. Then when the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua commanded the army, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is, all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble into it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury." 
When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab. Her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them into a place outside the camp of Israel. They then, then they burned the, the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this Solomon oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this, this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. But as uh, uh, before we get to uh, the soup later on today, um, we're actually we're actually um, going to be challenged by a book of the Bible that is a passage in a book of the Bible that is perplexing to say the least. So I'm going to ask God to help us to challenge us. And to help us to see how faithful he is uh, in light of his word. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can come together as your people. That we can come together as your people and see your holiness, see your faithfulness to your promises and be challenged to live for you in all we do. Pierce our hearts and minds today, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm not going to make a bold statement by saying we hate war. We do. We don't want it. And we're pretty thankful as a nation that it's always been arm's length away from us. This has not been a land that was established through civil war. But we've had times where it's been confronted with this. We've sent people into the Great Wars. And more recently, the Western world is dealing with terrorism in which this idea of destroying life in a type of war is becoming more real. So when we hear the God, the Lord of hosts, which the Bible often says that our translations often don't have hosts, sometimes say holy or other ways, the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of armies, is involved in a war and actually this is his war. We're perplexed and concerned. As Christians, we can be perplexed, concerned and think this is a different God to the God I know and we can 
hide from it. Push it down. Definitely not talk on it on Sunday because maybe someone will come who thinks this is the exact reason why I don't believe in God. And maybe you are here today and that's what you think. How can I believe in a God who is here saying this was his war? And so there's a good reason to reject God. I want to say today, and if you'll come with me, wrestle with, and I think we've genuinely got to wrestle with, it's still okay to get up and grab a Bible because it would be really helpful to have it in front of you uh, today, that we should do neither. Reject God because of these kind of passages or while we'll have questions that maybe can't even be resolved, as Christians hide from it. Instead, we look at these passages because the opposite should happen. We have a reason to trust in and live for God because of what we see in Joshua and what it's pointing us to. And so that's where I want to take us today. And so you've got the outline in front of you in the booklet. Where are we in the story? It's very helpful for us to be in the story. You may not have been here the four weeks that have been going on. And I want to encourage you to really wrestle with the whole book. But where are we before we get to Joshua? Well, we know God made us. He made us in his image. He made us to live for him. And it didn't last very long. We decided to turn everything upside down and make life about living for us. And sin enters the world and corrupts everything and chaos reigns. How is this going to be resolved? Well, we see that God with Abraham makes big promises and those promises are highlighted in three letters, which are, anyone? Love, oh, excellent, excellent. One day you're just going to yell that out and it'll be music to my ears. Lob, maybe next week. Lob, God promises that he is going to restore the brokenness that we have done through providing a way that his people can have land, offspring and blessing. Lob. And that is all going to find its fulfillment and achieve that ultimately through Jesus. And the whole of the Old Testament is moving us on this direction where we see these three blessings are happening or they're not happening and what's going on and the people and their promise, uh, responding to God's promises are or are not happening. And we know that the people ended up in slavery because of their rejection of God and they were in Egypt for 400 odd years, that's kind of a long time, right? Where the promises seem like they're nowhere near to be found. Except for that they kind of got on with the offspring side of things, where the people multiplied so much that Pharaoh got worried. And God rescues them, makes a covenant with them, tells them how to live with him, and they wander in the desert because they worship the golden calf instead. At the same time, he gave those promises. And here we get closer to the story of Joshua. Whereas in Joshua, we see that he is going to be God's man to lead the people to the land, the El of Lob. He makes promises. He promises to give them the land. 
And we see how God achieves that. We see how he rescued Rahab, who becomes very important in the story today that I looked at a couple of weeks ago. And we saw last week when Peter um, opened up for us how they crossed over into the Jordan, that amazing kind of recasting us back to the Exodus and, and walking through the Dead Sea. And here we see them again crossing over water and this time into the Promised Land. And the stage is set in chapter 5. The people are ready for a battle to have the land. But then it gets a little bit perplexing as we saw last week. Instead of going off into battle, they stop and they circumcise the males. And you're thinking, that is a very odd way to take over the land. But we saw, go back last week and consider that, that, uh, that chapter and what was going on, we saw that it was about them going into the land that God's promised them so that they're to remember the promises of God and renew their commitment to those promises, which circumcision was a significant sign. And so this story is building and building to a battle. And so what happens in this battle? Have a look. Uh, with me in Joshua, Joshua chapter 5. You see, what happens in this battle? Well, first of all, there's this odd character who turns up and it's very strange. You see, this, this, uh, this figure comes in verse 13 when Joshua was near Jericho, this city that has, um, uh, uh, that they are, are to take. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand and he said, and he said, are you for us or our enemies? He sees this mighty kind of figure with a sword and Joshua's like, be good to know whether he's going to fight for us or against us. That's what I want to know. And perplexingly, what's this commander of the army of the Lord say? Neither. That's probably not what Joshua was wanting. Well, what do I do with that? But the point here is, He's saying this this is God's war and it's not just pro-Israel. It's not just um, about them. It is about what God is going to do. This is God's judgment on evil. And we see that because, well, Rahab, a non-Israelite, turns to God's side. And we've read that she was um, rescued by them. And we'll see next week, Achan, an Israelite, not on God's side, big trouble for him. So we have this start, which is kind of just pointing us towards, let's not shirk away from the reality that this is God, uh, God's war. But the second thing we see is that it's a strange way, it's a bizarre way to fight a war, a battle. It's very odd, isn't it? Have a look in verse uh, chapter 6. The gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. Now, let me just stop here for a moment because I just want to mention, I love this Bible, the the big picture uh, story Bible. I think every kid should learn these stories over and over and over again and memorize them. You know why? Because when you do, you understand that God makes promises and they start all in the Bible from beginning to end. God makes promises and this Bible picks stories that traces that through and the whole land, offspring and blessing thing is highlighted in that. It's brilliant because it does that. 
I actually think for us uh, uh, adults, as we read that and we see how everything's kind of shared aside and see the simplicity of it, it's actually really helpful for us as well, funnily enough. But this book talks about Joshua, and I put a couple of pictures that are in there from this uh, book um, as well. And so you see the first picture there, you see that the armies, uh, as it says in, in 6 verse 1, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. They were securely barred because they were worried. See how the picture isn't quite right? <laughs> kind of it's a kid's Bible, so they're always trying to engage with the kids. But the Israelites, the, 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 um, those in Jericho are like, uh, we've got it covered, and the Israelites... They can't get us because of our fortified city. But what actually happens then is something quite odd. So there's this big wall. How are they going to break it down? Well, what you do is, is you get your priests. That's just odd as well. (laughs) You get your priests. But that's what happens. The Lord says to Joshua, um, get your priests and get them to go along um, uh, to go along around the city, a march around the city, blowing trumpets. But as you do that, you don't just just do that. What you need to do is to take the ark of the covenant with you. That's it. They're covered intentionally with the priests blowing trumpets, and then some armies protecting the ark. So here we've got a battle, and they've got this cumbersome ark going before them, and priests with trumpets that aren't very good. I'm not, I'm not aware of any trumpets that are good in battle, going before. It's strange. And they walk around, and they do this for seven days. Just go back to the previous slide, if you just leave it there. And they walk around. It would, imagine, imagine doing it. Just pause it for a moment and imagine that, okay, we've got this city, maybe two football fields big, and the way where God's told us to do it, Joshua's hearing, let's do this. Let's, let's just have a little snippet of it in verse uh, 2. See, I've delivered Derek Jericho into your hands, God said, along with its kings and its fighting men. March around the city once with all our men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of rams, horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests, blowing trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. That is never to be repeated again as a battle strategy. (laughs) It is odd. But it is God's battle and it's going to be achieved by a supernatural act of God. And the ark goes before. If you travel through this, uh, this section, the ark of the Lord is mentioned 10 times. And this is God's battle. What's the ark of the Lord represent? God dwelling with his people. And so God says, take the very thing that identifies me with you and the priests who are kind of the intermediaries and they go before. Never again in this way will a battle be won. And never again will God have his people dispossess another people. This is a holy God acting in a unique time in history. 
You know, when the disciples kind of allude to this, and we don't go into it now, Jesus actually says to them, no, 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 this is not how we're going to do it. My kingdom is not going to be extended by taking over and destroying other nations like that. It's the eternal kingdom, and Jesus will return at the end. The Crusades were wrong. Then what else happens in this story? We see that they do this and the wall falls down. You can see on the next screen this picture here. Um, and I think this potentially once again is, well, it's, it's good for the kids to see and you don't want them to maybe to necessarily get to the depths of how troubling this passage is. I'm not sure when the walls fall down that all of them would have fallen down because they're, destro- they're to destroy the whole city. Um, but they could easily run away if <laughs> all the walls fell down. I wonder whether it was just more, there's a section that was falling down and so that they could then uh, take them out. But have a look at verse 21 as this happens, because it's not the walls falling down that's disturbing. That's just God can do anything. But look at what happens when they shout. What happens next? They shout. I don't know what they said. It just says shout. I wonder what they said. But verse 21 they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. There's no getting away from it. It's a frighteningly troubling verse. And we don't hide away from it because the Bible never ever says that was wrong to do. It doesn't apologise for it. There are significant moments where God is dealing with the wickedness of others. And we will reflect on that a little bit more today and we'll also reflect on it a bit more next week. But what happens next in the story is super important to getting your head around verse 21, I reckon. So if you've got it in front of you, what happens after verse 21 is unsurprisingly verse 22, but in verse 22, we see that Joshua says, go and get Rahab. This big, troubling verse, go and get Rahab. See in verse 22, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her. If you remember back... Um, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Rahab was the one who Israelite spies went to. She was not an Israelite. She belongs to Jericho. But she made a decision that she was going to be on God's side. And so she was welcomed as part of God's people. So when there is destruction, if you turn back to God... You can belong with God's people. So you see how it says there? And then what happens, even more startlingly, verse 24, then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. They destroyed it, as God told them to. But look at verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family. Is clearly, this is written to highlight when there is destruction and judgment because of evilness and wickedness, there is 
grace and mercy when you turn to God. And so as she asked uh, earlier in Joshua to be spared and they promised to do that, here we see it plays out. Rahab and her family, to this day, it says, as this was written, were living with the Israelites as God's people. And then, unsurprisingly really, Joshua gets famous for what had happened. Verse 27, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. How do you feel about this passage? At one sense, it's extraordinarily interesting and amazing to imagine it happening. But it's super confronting as well. And I think we need to start, as we reflect on what's happening, by seeing God is holy. The holiness of God is a big theme in Joshua. It's a big pattern that's traced out throughout the whole Old Testament and it is fulfilled in Jesus, the perfect holy one. God is with his people and his holiness is so other to them that they had to deal with him with this amazing respect. So going into a land of wickedness needs to be dealt with. I think it's helpful for us. I've shown it before and I want to show it again because I love giving illustrations. I love giving visual illustrations. And I just want to show you the beginning of a video that highlights what holiness means. Because I want you to hold that there as we think about our God. Because it's where we're going to end up in our talk today. So Daniel, if you can just play and make sure the sound's up for this uh, little bit of the video on holiness. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. 
and Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the Most Holy Place, this the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution... He fell dead, the priest, in the holy place of that image, right? It's a problem, right? God's holiness, like the sun. That imagery, I think, is very helpful. The sun... Provides us life on this earth, but we can't get too close to it. We can't even get anywhere near it. God's holiness is so good, and since the fall, we are so far from that holiness. They can't go together. And in this passage, as we've seen in the others, this idea of the ark and the needing to be treated with this holiness. Look at verse 15 of chapter 5. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. These illusions continuing go back to Moses and here, the first time of holiness, take off your sandals. You can't go anywhere near here. We're here. This is a holy God. I'm the commander of the Lord's army, so this is a holy place. God's not right here, but you're close enough for his holiness. And we see these stories way all the way through the Bible of how holy, unique, powerful God is. And so if he's that powerful, that unique, that holy, he's all goodness. And his people can't can't go fully into his presence and there needs to be something fixed up about their impurity and the system that they have in place will kind of work but only for a time that needs to be fixed with Jesus. How can the land that they're going to take, which is full of absolute wickedness, of idolatry, of immorality, of children being sacrificed, be okay to this holy God? God is not being just kind of indiscriminate. This has been going on for centuries. In Genesis uh, chapter 15, the Amorites' wickedness is highlighted. God knows about it and he hasn't dealt with it. He's a patient God and he hasn't dealt with it. There's going to be a time when he does. And here we see in the case of Jericho, this time is now because his holiness is going to dwell. His people are here and it has to be dealt with. It is a unique period in time. We see God can't tolerate sin. Are we blasé to sin? I think more and more, I'm just too blasé. Are you? We're blasé because you know what we can do? We can compare ourselves to each other. You know, I know I do it in my head and you do it in your head, but we compare ourselves to each other. I can compare myself to to Tim and go, I've got, I'm actually quite good on that scale and Tim can do the same to me he just picks a different aspect of life we can do it to each other not tell each other but be okay with it oh this is just my problem it's not an issue this is just my battle hold that with the holy God it's not okay 
when we compare ourselves to God, everything gets turned on its head, doesn't it? God is holy. The second point I want to highlight is faithfulness, which we see here is God doing what he promised, giving people the land, him doing it. Faithfulness is the perfect accompaniment for making promises. What do I mean by that? You can make all the promises you like in the world. But you don't have to keep them. You could be a politician. <laughs> like, what is our problem often with politicians? Promise, promise, promise. Any election, millions and millions of promises, right? Just over and over and over. Promises and promises. They're not all kept. But that's the way the whole system works. We'll throw enough promises out there and if we win, we'll just highlight the ones we keep. It's not absolute keeping of promises. It's actually not possible because of the, the, the way our uh, world is in, in chaos and the way they make promises that they know they're not going to keep and a whole array of different things. It's not possible. We don't even know who our Prime Minister is in the last six years. Kids love jumping on a broken promise. You know, if you've ever, um, as a kid, your parents have said something, and it could be incoincidental. They said, "Oh, we're going to, we're going to have chicken for dinner tonight." And the parents look in the in the in the uh, cupboard and realize, "Oh, actually, we've got sausages. We're going to have sausages." And you're, like, "We were going to have chicken. You broke your promise." Might might be an issue that happened in our house recently. Like, this, when you want to jump onto a broken promise. Our lives, we can't fulfill promises perfectly. Sometimes they're incoincidental and it's not a big promise, a capital P promise. But Jesus, God, makes promises. Jesus makes promises. They are all kept. Not one promise in the Bible is broken. Have a crack. Try and find a broken promise. You will not find one. Faithfulness is the perfect accompaniment for making promises because it means if that is what God is like, we know there's a promise made, he's going to be faithful to it. It's going to happen. And so, thirdly, all these promises find fulfillment in Jesus. We have looked at Luke's gospel this year. We did Mark when we started Grove. And what we see about Jesus in the biography of Jesus' life is perfection. Never once veering from God's plan for him, never once veering into moral corruption, never once being unholy, being very different to the people around him. And he demonstrates justice and he shows us justice amazingly for us by taking the punishment that's deserved on us on himself. And this punishment that we deserve means that we can be cleansed and receive mercy. That is what a holy God who is faithful to his promises achieves for you and I. And Joshua in this story is highlighting and alluding that to us. He's highlighting that the reality is we have a God 
that he's reluctantly going to deal with evil. But he will. But he can cleanse us, purify us, provide mercy. Because he wants us to be his people. A holy God that is far holier than we give him credit for. That we rather are more blasé about our sin than consider the holiness of God. A holy God, a faithful keeping God, a God in Jesus who applies that to cleansing and purifying us. So what lessons then do we have to take away from it? Firstly, God's faithfulness is unsurmountable. It, 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 it cannot be taken over. There is nothing that you can do, that you can say, that is going to keep God from keeping his promises. And his promises include, if you reject him, God's wrath remains on you. Rightly. That is something we should hold dear. That God cannot have his faithfulness thwarted. Hold that dear to yourself. And as we do that, we need to remember that there is a day of judgment. There is a day when the Lord Jesus Christ will return after patiently waiting for his people to trust in him and there there won't be a blaseness about it there will be are you trusting in me in my side to purify you or are you rejecting me you know as disturbing as kind of that verse 21 is and we like to go, well, the New Testament doesn't talk like that. The reality is the New Testament goes harder because the New Testament focuses in on eternally. That the eternal consequences isn't just humanly speaking death. It is eternity without God. That is something that we should consider. But the day of judgment is encouraging as well, not just concerning. It is deeply encouraging because it reminds us that God trusts us and is faithful. Um, have a look at God's judgment, how he thinks about his judgment in Isaiah 28. So God talking about judgment here in Isaiah 28. We won't worry about the context now, but this summarizes how God thinks about his judgment. The Lord will rise up as he did at Mount uh, Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the Valley of Gibeon to do his strange work and perform his task, his alien task. He does not delight in judgment. He does not think this is fantastic it is his strange work. His relatable work is his love poured out for us to save us. But the flip side to that is that he patiently and reluctantly judges us. God 
forgives us. And Rahab is the example in that passage. There's judgment on a nation who's completely wicked, but within that nation, you turn back to God, there is forgiveness. And yet, we have promises from God unlike her. When we have uh, communion once a month, we say a verse every week, now, pretty much every week in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. Does anyone know what that verse is? Can you recall it? Next time at communion, maybe it'll make more sense to you while we have it there. What is God in that verse? He is faithful and just. What does he do for us? He purifies us from all unrighteousness. Ah, very, very good, very good. We remind ourselves of that because he forgives us because the holy God purifies us. We have a promise that Rahab didn't have. Jericho teaches us God's reluctancy to deal with wickedness, but he will. But it also teaches us that he forgives. I don't know where you are with God whether you've thought that a passage like this makes it very hard for you to believe in him. But if you see that God keeps his promises and your promises for you are that Jesus is going to deal with all of your wickedness compared to his holiness, you can trust in him and have life with him and live a life like Rahab. And I encourage you to do that. You see, we can have an active faith like Rahab. You see, Rahab made decisions to live as God's people to this, uh, and, and it says to this day she was with them. To live as God's people is to be other, because God is other. We respond to a faithful, holy God, hear this very clearly, by being different. Are you? I wonder whether that is a good confronting thing for us all to reassess. And if you can't articulate where you're different in all aspects of life, pour yourself out before God and ask him to help him make that clear to you. Let me do that by, let's um, have a look at two two passages to finish. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, as we said, we're going to do 1 Peter at the end of the year in a sermon series. We're going to have a night of Thanksgiving reflecting on it. And I can't help but go there because of what uh, what Peter says um, in, in, a, in, this, in chapter 1, rather, sorry. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. This isn't up on the screen, um, but let me read to you a little bit of it. In verse 13, he's talking to those who live all around. They're dispersed. They're kind of in amongst those that don't follow Jesus. And he says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But as he called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We're just 
reflected on how holy God is and how other, and our life now is to be, reflect that more and more and more. We're not going to get anywhere near it this side of heaven, but that is the trajectory that we are passionate about and that we head on. That we are to be holy. That is another way of saying that is we are to be more and more like Jesus, who was perfectly holy. John says the same thing. I put this up on the screen. Have a look at 1 John chapter 2. I remember memorizing this verse and, and along with uh, another 15 verses, I think it was, in 1 John when I was working as an OT. And gee, it was helpful when I was working in a, in a workplace that was <laughs> extremely unholy. Look at this, 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. What is it of the world you love? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself this question. Maybe you can ask a friend. Ask your spouse. Ask someone who knows you well. Where am I living for the world? Where is the lust of my eyes leading me astray? Where is my action so similar to the world that there's no difference? I think it's a good time for us to consider that we are to be more holy like God because he has saved us. We're going to continue to reflect on this idea and we're going to continue to reflect on this idea over the coming weeks and 1 Peter really just is a book that highlights that more and more for us over the, um, in which we're going to do in term four. So as we finish... Rest in the faithfulness of a holy God. We don't have the full story. We don't understand exactly how this works and and it makes us feel uncomfortable. But we have absolute crystal clear clarity on the holiness of God. On his promise of making us holy in Christ. That he is going to come and he is going to judge the living and the dead. Rest comfortably knowing that in Jesus you are forgiven and be holy as God is holy. Amen.